Welcome to Drink Beer, Think Beer, the podcast that gets to the bottom of every pint. I'm John Hall, and this week I'm talking with Jake Miller. He's a co-founder and a brewer at Heirloom Restigales in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I want to get into the interview quickly because I found Jake to be a thoughtful guy and a brewer that is intent on not following a set path, and you're going to hear about that. Before launching Heirloom a few years ago, he cut his teeth at breweries like Prairie Artisan Ales, Wolves and People, and Saints Somewhere. And along the way, he picked up different brewing techniques and a sense for the aesthetics that make for a good brewery and channeled it into his own place. And I had the chance to visit Oklahoma a few years ago, before his brewery opened, but right when the big changes were coming to the state beer-wise. And Oklahoma is a state that we don't actually hear much about when it comes to the beer scene, so I wanted to start there, with what's happening on the ground. Jake spoke to me from the brewery in Tulsa. Here's our conversation. Yeah, it's kind of crazy because I guess when I started brewing, um, we kind of had this crazy idea uh, when I was at Prairie Artisan Ales, uh, we were like, oh, well, I think we can make 4% beers and sell them in the tap room directly to consumers. And so we were the first uh, tap room to sell these beers. And basically it was just kind of using the loophole that, you know, macro beer had made. And so we just started making 4% beers and, you know, and we would have people show up from out of state that, you know, were just bomb fanatics and they'd walk in and see whole pallets of this stuff and be like, oh my gosh, I'm going to buy a whole case. And we couldn't even sell it to them. And, uh, you know, but we, but <laughs> and, we had these... and that's just got to be beyond frustrating. Oh, for everyone. I mean, cause you know, then I look like an asshole because I'm, you know, going, yeah, man, that's, that's not, uh, not going to happen. We can't do it legally. And they're like, well, I'm from South Carolina. And I'm like, it doesn't, doesn't matter. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> it's like, cool. You know, yeah, but that's... I got this 4% Goza for you that I know you're dying to have. And, uh, you know, and so it ended up being this thing for like the first six months was more frustrating than anything. Cause you know, everybody just wanted what the brand was known for. And we were making these really light, you know, English mild Pilsners, um, Gozas, those kind of things that work in the 4% category, but that's all we could sell. Um, so for me, it was like my dream tap room. Uh, and then we just had, yeah, we just had so many frustrated people out of there because they would just be looking at beers heading to distro. Um, and there was nothing we could sell them. And then uh, there was another brewery locally that, uh, so they got their actual bar license and you would see them shipping out into a truck, a pallet of kegs that was literally going to go sit in a warehouse and then get delivered right back to them the next day, priced at uh, the dis distributor's uh, margins. <laughs> it's like, it was a crazy, and that was all, you know, like five years ago. Yeah. And, uh, and then, so once the, uh, once there was kind of chatter that these, uh, laws were going to change, I started talking to some friends that were, you know, closer to the legislature and kind of knew what was going on. And they were like, yes, for sure, this is going to happen. And so we, uh, we announced almost, I don't know, it was probably two or three months, uh, after I heard that we announced that we were going to open 
And then, man, I thought we were going to be able to be like one of only a few new breweries for at least like a year. But every month it was one and two breweries opening somewhere in Oklahoma um, as soon as those laws changed. Well, I mean, and that makes sense. If yeah. if it's easier to do business, um, you know, people are going to do business. And I mean, there's still, I mean, Prairie is still, I think, known is probably the best known craft brewer from your state, like outside of the states. And that's the that's not really to put a knock on what anybody else is is, is doing, but it's longevity and you know some of those those early recipes that that that, that made an impact. Is is there when I think of how there are different regions in the country and what brewers collectively sort of tend towards or, or trend towards, is there is there a way of sort of putting a point on what Oklahoma beer is these days? Man, I don't know. I, you know, that's, I think that's a hard question to answer for almost any region, you know, like <laughs> it's, uh... that's why I'm here, man. I'm just, I'm, I'm just here to confound and delight and all of the other things. Yeah, no, I, I think you're on to it. Uh, that's a that's a hard question to answer because, I mean, I think you can go to these different places where you're like, oh, well, I drink this beer here. It's kind of like whenever you go to Maine and you're drinking Allagash White, you know, it's it's like the benchmark for that state. And no matter what anybody else in that state does, I think it'll always kind of stand in the shadow of that beer. But you don't also see like everybody in that region making wit beer or some sort of Belgian, yeah. you know, spinoff of that beer. And, uh, you know, it's kind of like here. I still think if you were to ask, you know, people all over the country what Oklahoma beer they're familiar with, they're still going to say bomb. And, um, yeah. you know, but that doesn't mean that every brewery here or even half the breweries here have anything like that beer. And um, so I don't know. I feel like there's regional staples that we can look at and go, this beer defines this region or these beers define that region. But it doesn't necessarily influence how anybody else in that region's brewing beer. Mm-hmm. That makes and sense. Yeah. I don't, uh, you know, the closest, the closest thing I think you can actually get to that. And it's like one of my favorite cities to drink in. Um, and it also just makes so much philosophical sense for the place, but is Austin. Um, you know, when I go there, it's like there's probably six Pilsners that I'm just dying to drink. And I don't know very many places in the country about any kind of beer uh, where it's just like, oh, I can't wait to get my hands on all these, you know, benchmark of whatever style. Yeah. Why did you become a brewer? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I think uh, ultimately I was just really attracted to the idea of it. Um, I started off as a bartender in craft beer bars. And uh, when I was, I don't know, I was just really into picking apart everything about those beers and learning as much as I could. And so obviously the idea of crafting those things uh, was it didn't take very long to make that jump, that that was a thing that I think I could be interested in. 
and uh i finally got a job doing it and uh, and then what kind of happened that maybe i wasn't expecting is realizing that it was this kind of perfect conglomeration of all of these um aspects that i had either studied or thrown myself at for so long um and it was it like even when i was in college you know i was a major in art and biology and all of these things started coming together of like oh my gosh this is like it's really challenging because there's all these different uh things going on at once and I can, uh, you know, whether it's forming a label, forming a brand, marketing the brand, and then there's recipe development, figuring out how you're going to make yeast viable for as long as possible. How many yeast pitches am I going to use? There's like so much going on. And it's one of the only things that I've ever felt completely challenged by, no matter how long I do it. And for me, that's, that's important. I think I get bored super fast. And as soon as I figure out a job, you know, it's hard for that job to fulfill me any longer because I've, I've got it down. And this is something that I think I'm in year seven or eight at this point, and it still feels like the, the wheel gets reinvented all the time for things I could learn, things I could be doing better. And so, I mean, I love it. So that's... I think that's a pretty good segue into a couple of weeks ago you announced uh, through your social media panels or, or social media channels, I should say, uh, that you were going to be releasing your last Oak Age Wild Ale release. Um, and when I first got to know your brewery, a lot of this, these you know mixed firm coming out of wood uh, is, is what you were known for. And to be a few years into this now and to say – Hey, we're known for this and we're not going to do this anymore. I, yeah. Can, can you walk <laughs> me through where that decision came from and how it was executed and where you go from here? Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's kind of a, I guess, interesting for, uh, you know, it's a great lesson and reminder that no one's in your head, but yourself too. Uh, cause, <laughs> cause for me, uh, I definitely thought when we were announcing that, that it was kind of like a no brainer um, and that people maybe saw it coming for a long time. And, but basically there wasn't like a backlash. It was just, I had all these people reach out to me and go, you know, Hey, what's going on? Are you all right? Uh, like almost trying to like talk me off a ledge and um, you know, for us, I, I think it goes back to the reputation that you build when you're first doing this and you first start out um, is the reputation that people will almost always know you for and to shift at all um, takes a long time. And uh, so for us, we've released maybe two or three mixed culture beers um, a year since we opened um, so it's not even making up 2% of, you know, what we what we release, hmm. but because, you know, 
coming from mixed culture backgrounds and mixed culture ferments and that being, you know, when your reputation is on prairie wolves and people and saints somewhere, this kind of idea of who you are as a brewer and what you would always want is established, whether or not you're a part of establishing it or not. And, uh, this brand has really never reflected those products and it's never been a major showcase or uh, narrative for us, but we're still, you know, I think there's people that walk into our tap rooms still to this day and just expect fruited mixed culture beers to just start taking up draft lines. <laughs> and uh, It's even though we've been telling them for three, almost, I mean, I guess three and a half years now that, that's not going to happen. Um, you know, there's still that expectation that you're going to remember who you are. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's, so it's kind of, I don't know, I guess it's a good lesson, uh, in, in a sense too, that, uh, I need to be more vocal about <laughs> what we're up to and reinforcing <laughs> that. Cause I think our, Communication uh, since Heirloom started has been pretty clear that we're making simple beers. Um, Kolsch and Lager have been the beers we've been most focused on um, since we opened, but it literally has just never hit um, that that's what we're doing. And, um, and I think putting that post out and getting all these messages, it was like, guys, come on. You, you know this we've been we've been talking about this for years and everybody who was talking to me you know even four and five years ago at different brands knew this was kind of a thing that was bubbling up inside of me and um you know but as soon as you actually i guess say it with hard facts this is the end you know then you start getting all these people who are like no don't do it and which was which is flattering too. I mean, it's cool that people think highly of those kinds of beers that you're making. Um, I, it's just never will cease to amaze me that it's really hard to come out of a a thing that you've become in this industry. I I imagine it's a never say never again kind of thing. And if it's a if it's such a small part of what the brewery was doing. I imagine a lot of people were asking, well, why don't you just keep doing it then? Yeah. Yeah. And and that's a fair question. I think, um, you know, a downside of my personality is, is that uh, I'm extremely passionate and focused and it's hard for me to, um, to make these really, uh, it's hard for me to not focus on being the most authentic thing I can be. And, uh, and so sometimes that looks like, you know, losing some of these focuses and so that I can become even more singular in a way. And, um, and I've, you know, with barrels, you know, it's, it's hard to explain until you have a cellar full of them. Um, you're just constantly looking at these things that are taking up space and that are slowly dying. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and for me, it was that I wasn't enthusiastic about blending them, you know, there, and that was, that was the sign that things had really changed for me. You know, I remember when I used to just hate, you know, working on the stainless side of things and just 
loathed it. And, uh, but as soon as, you know, there was a blend day, you know, it would like make up for my next two months of whatever adjunct stout hell I had to go through. <laughs> and, uh, I just didn't feel that anymore at all. I'd come in and look at barrels and just almost slump and be like, what am I going to do with these things? And, uh, you know, and so that's a hard, that's a hard thing to communicate to people who love something that you're doing. Um, cause you don't want to tell them that you're burnt out on it. And, uh, but at the same time, it got to a point where it's just like, I don't need to communicate all that, but I'm, I am going to communicate that this is no longer a thing that we're doing and that you can expect from us. And, um, did you feel a weight lifted when you finally put that post up? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's it also is kind of you know this risk i guess in a way that i've been kind of towing the water on taking and uh and that i think i needed to fully jump in and go you know what like i've been talking like this for like four years now it's time that i actually you know fully commit to it and which no one requires that you know every almost every brewery that opens now it's like well here's our barrel room and well that's our whole yeah. horizontal lager tanks <laughs> and like well i don't know, you know i don't know too many breweries that have horizontal lager tanks i'd love to see more of that but yeah yeah it's uh and i guess that's just me sarcastically uh, <laughs> no but you're right though that it, people yeah. open up with three barrels in a corner and they're like, well, here's our wood age project going on. And it's like, <laughs> right. all right, like, cool. Yeah, no, it's like, I never thought I'd live in a world where people are like, well, during the construction phase, here's my spontaneous room. And I'm like, what? Like this, there were, you know, there were five or six of us doing this, you know, even six years ago yeah and now you can be a home brewer that's never commercially brewed in your life and you have a barrel room a spontaneous room and then all these different you know aspects to your beer program that are almost impossible to maintain um and i'm not knocking those things i'm more just suggesting that I don't know why I personally struggle with it because more breweries now are doing so many things all at once. And that's kind of the way. Um, but but, for it, me, but that guess, wasn't always the case. I mean, when people started off, they were focused on one, two, maybe three brands and they were all in the same family or you had breweries that were just dedicated to, you know, one style. I mean, fuck, I mean, Guinness. Right. I mean, it's, yeah. you know, people weren't going there for the Saison. No, no. And I think, you know, the breweries that I look up at that, you know, still kind of resonate with me um, are the focus. And uh, because there's just, there's a point where you get in this and, it's almost sex to drink beer because you can't turn anything off. You can't just sit around and enjoy a beer anymore, which is kind of the bummer bummer of it. And I think that's why you see a lot of, a lot of brewers that have been in the game for a while. You know, my fridge is full of Pacifico and then there's brewers that have all these other macro beers yeah. or something along those lines. And it's because it's the only thing we can drink without having to pull it apart. 
and but at the same time because that's where we're at you know it's hard for me to not want to focus on this thing and just make three of the best possible things that I can and constantly be sharpening that and weirdly enough you know that's like the most attractive thing to me when when I started and really up until about three or four years ago, it was like, I never want to brew the same thing twice. I just constantly want to be spinning off the edge of experimentation. But that's youth. And, I mean, and yeah. and I remember talking with, I mean, there's brewers in, in New York. I, I think Grimm early on was saying like, oh, we're never going to do the same beer twice. And that was a common refrain from brewers that I heard, you know, opening up in circa 2015. You know, of just yeah, and 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 I remember thinking to myself at the time, that sounds exhausting. And, it you is know, exhausting. and and but then it's also <laughs> confusing to the to the consumer as well. Where, you know, if if I really liked something last week, well, I know it's not going to be there when I go back next week. So why am I going to go back? You know, if if I'm in the mood for something in particular, um, it's just yeah. it seemed it always seemed like it was sort of a, a hazardous business plan. <laughs> Well, and, and then you'll find all of us now almost bemoaning consumers because they come in <laughs> Careful. and it's like, the, oh, what's, I'm pretty sure what's, they're the ones that keep you open, but yeah. Oh, I know. But <laughs> at the same time, there's not a brewer in the world who doesn't sit around and go, oh, I dislike this about the clientele now. And I guess my point is the we sat there and spun off in all these directions where it's like, oh, we brewed 127 beers, you know, in 2017. And then we'll all sit around and bemoan the fact that everybody who comes in wants to know what's new since last week. Yeah. And it's like, well, we did that. <laughs> so it's like we want to we want to talk shit about that or explain how naive we think that is or whatever. But it was our own naivety that kind of conducted that. And we were the ones that were producing a beer a week and we got people used to that. And so when they come in now, it's like, oh, man, you guys ever going to put something new on draft? It's like, God, I put something new last Tuesday. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, it's just never fast enough. But I think we've created that through kind of what we did 2014 to 2018. So how do you reframe the conversation then for the people who come in, you know, looking for something newer than last Tuesday? Um, because you're right that the people walk in and they'll say, you know, what's new, what's ra rare, what's local. And I, I want to say it was Matt Brendelson years ago who told me those were the three most dangerous words. Um, uh, although it wasn't now that I'm thinking about it, it was Ted Whitney who was at 21st Amendment at the time. Uh, okay. The three most dangerous words were new, rare and local. Um, but that's what people had, you know, come to expect. So how do you how do you reframe that conversation, you know, especially in an in an area where there is such interest now and in relationship to the rest of the country, your brewing scene is relatively new. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, you know, it's relatively new, but at the same time, I think those early prairie years um, have had maybe even somewhat more of an effect on the brewing scene um, than, let's say, like a, a, a brewing scene that got established five or six years earlier. 
Okay. Um, because, you know, for like, as far as beer traders and rare beer and stuff like that, you will not find a brand that had more power than Prairie, you know, in the early days, like all of those bomb variants and stuff like that. I mean, people posting pictures in front of seven and eight cases and <laughs> knowing what the secondary market value of that, that was stuff that was happening here like six years ago. Yeah. You know, and I think, so what's really weird is, you know, at any given time in your tap room, you have five of those folks and then you have five people who have never been to a brewery and they're like grandkids or their sons or daughters are taking them for like a fun local activity and they're visiting three, you know, microbreweries on a Saturday. And so you have this kind of wide, wide range of people to appease. Um, and for us, you know, we're not necessarily trying to, uh, I wouldn't say that we're trying to have this conversation about what people should and shouldn't be after. Or if you're wanting to go, you know, check in some new beers on an untapped, like that's a thing you can do. And, you know, and you know, the places that are best for doing that. Um, we, we mostly are just trying to be that consistent brewery where when you walk in and this happens all the time, you know, they'll go and, and they'll be sitting there with the beers that they bought you know, earlier that day, um, for beer releases. And then they'll sit there and actually drink four Pilsners at the bar. Yeah. And, you know, and for me, that's like the, that's perfect because it's other breweries that are in the niche of lines and beer releases. And then our brewery is serving exactly what it's supposed to do, which is you can come and spend five to six bucks for beers that you just want to drink at a bar. And I don't think you necessarily have to create the conversation. Um, you know, if somebody wanted to sit down and go, man, why aren't you guys releasing stuff every single week? And it, I mean, I have a narrative for that, but I don't really have to talk about it maybe as much as, as you would think. So you've put a lot of your focus these days on, lagers and i've had the chance to sample through um a bunch of them recently for some upcoming wine enthusiast uh uh panels and you know i didn't know what i was drinking at the time and then you know got to uh do the reveal and uh yeah i i really dug what you were doing and i there's a lot of talk about brewers doing lagers these days um but it's usually part of you know, a larger program, you know, it's like, well, here's our, you know, our three barrels and that's our barrel program. And here's our fooder and this is our mixed fermentation and here's our stout program and here's our adjunct stout program. Oh yeah. And those are the lagers, but have you seen our West coast IPAs and our East coast IPAs? <laughs> you putting all of this focus on, or so much of your focus on lagers. And you mentioned, you know, having a fridge full of Pacifico. What's driving that these days? Like where, like, why the lager focus? Um, you know, I think you're going to see some of that. Uh, you know, it's kind of the same. If you look back at all those times in the past, like, let's just say five years 
where there were moments of just weird uh like this year it was about this kind of beer a lot of brewers drive that um you know it starts happening and then through talking to all the other brewers in their circles it starts getting out there and people start doing it and you know and it becomes it becomes a thing and i think when you look at lager you look at kind of the prevailing demigods of beer and they're all talking about it, you know, and that's, uh, and then you have a lot of these younger brewers that are storming social media, um, trying to define who they are within, (laughs) you know, the scene and who they want to become and all of the people that carry media. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, that's a great way of putting it. I, you know, it's true though. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, I mean, I, I call them social media brewers where it's, you know, not necessarily their own identity, their own experiences, their own kind of gathering of, uh, these things that slowly translated into who they've become. It's looking at the, uh, most valued, breweries for whatever reason um and looking at what they're talking about romantically and trying to become that themselves and you know and it's uh i think i think there's that piece i think the other piece is you have a bunch of brewers that are completely exhausted by you know these things where it's like how many organ fruit purees do you need in a beer anymore (laughs) you know and It's, uh, you're sitting there making these beers that turn in five days, but it takes you 24 hours to like adjunct them properly. And that I think tears away at the thing that they envision themselves doing. And, uh, so you have multiple ways of getting to it, but you know, and it's also like how often can really people maintain these like eight, and 9% profiles, you know, as far as like, it kind of moves outside of what beer has served for the populace for so long. And I'm not dissing those things. I'm not saying, I mean, you can walk into my tap room and I have two beers that are over 9% right now, but I'm saying, I think that there's a lot of people that understand that kind of this niche that beer has always served is a thing where you can have four or five of them and it doesn't ruin your day. And yeah. And I think that that really appeals to a lot of people, even the people that are buying those heavy, heavy hitters, because there are moments where that doesn't work and you can't really, you know, bring those into the circumstance of your day. You mentioned, and so I think yeah. all those kind of create this perfect um, kind of like why you see so much lager getting talked about right now. What I what I found interesting though is when you were talking about having Pacifico in your fridge or you know people who have Modelo or Banquet or 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 whatever, it's beer. I, I think you said it's beers you don't have to pick apart. Uh, it's beers that you just kind of drink and enjoy. So many of the I think by nature of being craft or being small or whatever, people pick apart lagers that are being made by brewers of your size. It is the goal to to get to that Pacifico part where. You know, not necessarily size, but where people can just drink it and not have to think about it. 
Yeah, I mean, we, the way I always kind of talk about lager or Kolsch is um, the beauty of those beers for me is the ability to all at once be profound while maintaining simplicity. And so, yeah, you're going to have people that just, you know, especially, you know, the demographic that I'm thinking about are those folks that basically, uh, you know, have, have no experience outside of the macro world and they're going to come in and they're going to actually be talking before they even get your beers about how they're probably not going to like them because they're too pretentious. And then they're going to get a flight. And for me, that's my favorite customer because I'm going to hit them with Kolsch, Mexican lager, pills, and uh, American light lager. And it will be probably the first flight that they've ever drank the whole thing. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and that's a, uh, that person will walk away going, oh, I just could gulp those beers like I do other beers. And that's the entire experience for them. But I think that there are plenty of people who are into investigating beer that can still have that same experience, um, you know, with lager and Kolsch as well. I'm not saying that they should be up to that, but there is, you know, for me, there's this perfect, whenever I'm drinking Pilsner, I mean, I still have to be careful because when I'm drinking mine, you know, it definitely is an evaluation and it always will be. Um, and if I don't nail the bitterness on it, I'm super pissed and <laughs> it, it drives me nuts. And for me, that's like a, a major piece of pills. You know, it's like when you can kind of get that thing that smells like mineral bread, mm -hmm. like in the nose yeah. and then it never, uh, the bitterness never is a thing that you think about, but it comes in and keeps it from any sort of sweetness i love that that to me is the best experience in beer you can have and when i don't hit that i definitely know that i didn't and i'm frustrated as hell until the next batch goes on which you know takes a couple of weeks i imagine so uh, it takes like yeah i mean our turnaround for our pills is right about 38 39 days and so i'm pissed for like a month <laughs> One of the beers that I had from you was an American light lager and yeah. for so long. And I, I think thanks to great marketing by stone and, you know, some of the other early uh, adopters in the space where it was, you know, like, we don't want Bud Light. We're the anti Bud Light. You know, we don't want, you know, fizzy yellow, whatever. Um, I, I, I love that brewers are making American light lagers these days and you're never going to be able to compete on the scale of, Anheuser-Busch InBev. Um, but uh, what, what do you like about making that style? Why make that style? I mean, there's a lot of interesting lagers out there and a lot of interesting uh, flavor profiles. Uh, American Light Lager doesn't necessarily often pop up to the top of my list as you know, compelling taste-wise. <laughs> um, what's the appeal for you? Yeah, uh, I think, I mean... The easy one is that I just love rice and corn and beer. 
Um, I love the way those things play out. I love how they change the profile. Um, so obviously playing with Mexican lager and American light lager, you get to work with those ingredients. And for me, I use grits a lot. It's kind of a local adjunct that brings about those similar profiles. And so it's fun from a recipe development standpoint, but I think, you know, for me, the heart of those beers is I'm an angler and those are things that are just as much part of a fishing trip as anything else is, you know, nobody, nobody's bringing IPA to a fishing trip. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, I mean, there's that one guy, but yeah, <laughs> yeah he's that, usually, that... he's usually passed out, you know, before you, know, you lose sight <laughs> of land. So exactly, exactly. Uh, you I'm, know, the, I'm speaking the... from experience. So yeah, it's, <laughs> I was going to say, you've really drawn this one up. Yeah. This is, uh... <laughs> Boy, you paint a pretty vivid picture of your nautical drinking experiences. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is, uh, I think, culturally, you know, within anglers, like, they're going to look at you weird if you show up with something that's 5% or more. You know, that's, because uh, the idea is, is this is basically replacing water for the day. And you're working hard and it's for me, you know, that beer has always been hams. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and it's, are you a Midwest better... guy by, uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I grew up, I was born and raised in Oklahoma and grew up here and yeah. And then, you know, and then whenever I've moved, like when I was in the Pacific Northwest, that beer was Rainier. Sure. And, you know, and it just rotates depending on where I'm living. Um, but it's funny. I can look at like being an angler and going steelheading in the Pacific Northwest. And Rainier was always a part of that. And when you've been skunked all day by a fish and you've thrown a thousand casts, that beer tastes better than anything on earth. And it serves as kind of a very specific thing in my head. And so having a brand that has that thing for that moment is important to me. Earlier on in the conversation, when we were talking about the, the mixed fermentation stuff, you talked about burnout and that's not something that I think gets talked about enough in the beer space these days. And yeah, or life in general, because you know, a lot of the time we have to, push these things down or, you know, not, not talk about, you know, our, our mental state of things. When you recognize that in yourself, how did things change for you business-wise, beer-wise, you know? Um, I mean, personally, is is going to be your own business, but w when you can start to address burnout, um, did, did you notice a difference around the brewery? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's the most, you know, I remember when Sean Hill was talking about alcoholism needing to be a thing that's brought up, you know, on like a national level within yeah. the industry. Um, I think equally important is burnout um, and depression uh, based around this idea that you're working, you know, it is not at all unheard of to pull 70 and 80 hour work 
work weeks in this industry. And it doesn't change the fact that you're still going to be making $40,000 a year. Yeah. And, um, you know, or you're on a a good year. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Or you're in a spot where, you know, you've transitioned from being a brewer to an owner and you're looking at, you know, your SBA loan bill coming in every month. And there's no amount of hours that you can do to change what's going on. And that stuff needs to be talked about and addressed. And I'm pretty quick, I guess, to, I don't know, institute that and direct that. I mean, my friend circle of brewers that, you know, we have a text thread that we're constantly talking in and I'm pretty quick to, you know, check in on that. And they're pretty quick to, you know, talk about how they think about quitting the industry every single day. And it's, uh, it's a thing that exists for sure. And I think until you're willing to, to talk about it, I mean, it's only going to get worse because, you know, the things that are bringing that about are not going to change. Um, and so I think it's an important, an important deal to kind of get in with a bunch of people and to talk honestly, you know, it's, I have a friend who's been in the industry for just as long as I have, and he's a well-known brewer. And, you know, he was asking me, he's like, do you find that it's hard to think about yourself outside of this industry? And that's the ultimate thing, I think, is once you get in this, you gain a reputation and it's very easy for you to kind of put your entire identity into what people think of you in the beer world as yeah and for me i'm lucky i guess because you know i have all these other interests um that kind of save me i guess uh from from that but the amount of people in this industry that you know the thing that they hold on to the most is what those people that come into their tap room say about them and their beer. And that can be, that can be a powerful thing for good, but I think it can also wreck you. As you think about education, you think about evolution, you think about how your own brewery has changed, you know, even since it opened, you're focused on loggers right now um, and, and, and doing a bang up job on it. What's in the back of your mind? What's what's starting to bubble up to the surface? What's next? Does there yeah. have to be something next? <laughs> I think for me, you know, uh, a thing that's also been a part of this brand since we opened that's equally important. Um, you know, I, I wasn't really talking to anybody about the beer uh, during the build out. You know, it was just kind of like I knew what I wanted to do and kind of trusted it. Um, but I wanted to be a place that had a really major impact on the community. Um, and so, I mean, we're constantly doing beers that, you know, a dollar from every pour and a dollar from every four pack, you know, goes to, um, a cost. And, uh, we were kind of a philanthropist of sorts is the way I see it. And, is as far as like the future for for us you know i'm almost more 
um, more interested in that uh, than, you know, well, I could see Cezanne coming back in two years and I'd really be interested to speak to that. You know, it's like, that's, I think, I think less of that um, and more about how can heirloom impact Tulsa for good. And the future of the brand for me looks like that. You know, we talk all the time, me and uh, my business partner about uh, becoming employee owned. Um, and the core people that are a part of building out what heirloom becomes, giving them percentages of ownership, because I know for a fact that you can't really make a career in a mid-sized brewery like forever. Yeah. Um, it's an extremely hard thing to do. And so making that possible where someone doesn't hit where most brewers, sellermen, sales, where most people hit is like six years in, they're like, well, I've hit the ceiling. And if this is the ceiling, I'm fucked. And I want to try my best to make sure that if you're a part of heirloom, you know, that that's, that ceiling is can go as high really as you want it to and you're participating in the height of the of the ceiling and in the philosophy of the brand um and i think for me as i get older those things become just as important as the beer we're producing you know if i have a bunch of disgruntled employees and i'm constantly having to manage that disgruntlement like i have failed in the same way that i have failed if my beer sucks I like that. I mean, I, that you're thinking long term, but that you're also thinking about the people that are there with you. And I, I know a lot of brewers might have that somewhere in the back of their mind or owners might have that in the back of, of, of their mind. But to actually be verbalizing it and to, to, to putting it out there into the universe, I, I, I like hearing that. So um, thank you. Yeah, um, yeah. I hope I can make it happen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's the other that's that's the hard work. That's the tricky part. But right. Um, before I let you go, I I just want to talk about your your social media pages for just a second because what struck me as I've been going through them uh, leading up to this interview, um, you put a lot of beer into and and I hesitate to call them glasses because most of them look like flower vases. Right. Um, <laughs> You're non-traditional in your drinkware choices, and it's it's fun to look at, if not a little impractical. And yeah. I, I, are you drinking out of these, or is this just good photo for for social media? It's totally photo generated. I mean, it's <laughs> uh, it's uh, yeah, this uh, garage sale of glassware uh, that we have is more of a. Uh, I think it's just a, it, it's actually one of those things too, that I, when I see those things, it's such a testament to the people who work here. Um, which is also a big, a big thing for me is I've never wanted to be the face of this brand and the, and I'm not the face of it. It's actually more likely that you're going to see my employees, you know, you're going to see them 10 times more often. Jess might post one or two pictures of me a year. Cause that's about what I'll allow. And the brand is totally taken on this kind of perception that's more about my employees than me. And I think that that what you just pointed out is such a 
indicator of that because that's you know jess is always just like how can i make this thing look more like a potion than <laughs> than you know just a boring ass glass of beer um, where we talk monotonously about ingredients and things no one understands um how can we how can we sell this is more of this environment that we're trying to create versus you know this is our favorite glass that we put our favorite beer in and here's all the ingredients and the fermentation schedule. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so I, I'm glad that that's something that, uh, that reached you because that's definitely the embodiment of my employees and their creativity and their voice coming through. Well, cool. I like it. Uh, everybody should go check out the, the Instagram page that I'm talking about. I think it's just uh, uh, Heirloom Rustic Ales on, on Instagram. So uh, go go check that out. And Jake, thanks for sitting down and taking the time and talking with me today. I, I really appreciate the insights that you're sharing and looking forward to more lager and to actually getting back to Oklahoma and drinking it inside of your place, which uh, can't happen soon enough as far as I'm concerned. So um, th thanks again for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. That's Jake Miller of Heirloom Rustic Ales, although maybe they need a name change with all the loggers coming out of their cellar these days. Anyway, check them out, and next time you're in the neighborhood, stop by and have a pint of lager. And before we go, a quick reminder. Make sure to head over to Facebook and join the This Week in Rauschbeer group because there's always something smoky going on. And if beer audio is your thing, make sure you listen in to the Beer Edge podcast with Andy Crouch for deep dive conversations with interesting brewery owners and more. And also head over to BeerEdge.com for articles and to sign up for the newsletter. Every Monday, look for a new episode of Steal This Beer. We celebrated 300 episodes this week. And once a month, you should download the BYO Nano podcast, which is celebrating a year uh, this month. So please don't forget to subscribe to this show and to leave a review. And you can always reach me via email at John Hall, that's J-O-H-N-H-O-L-L -L at BeerEdge.com, or on Twitter at John underscore Hall. Nate Schwaber does the music. Jeff Quinn designed the logo. And if you want to learn more about advertising on the show, you can send an email to Liz Melby. She's at Liz at BeerEdge.com, and she'll get you all the information that you need. I'm John Hall. New episodes of this show release every Wednesday, and that's when I'll be back again to drink beer and to think beer. <laughs>